Like any art form, film acting has seen many styles and trends cycle through its lifespan. In the earliest days, over-the-top affectations stolen from the stage were the norm. But as the differences between stage and screen became more pronounced, a shift towards more nuanced, natural performing was inevitable. This new idea came to Hollywood guised as the Stanislavski system, which encourages the actor to explore internal and external aspects to fully realize a character and is most closely associated with what we call method acting today. Many notable acting coaches brought this technique to Hollywood, including Stella Adler, whose most notable student, Marlon Brando, were so skilled at the technique, he single-handedly ensured it would go on to become the new Hollywood standard, which it largely still remains to this day. Brando's performance in A Streetcar Named Desire, his first major film role, is considered one of the most influential to modern film acting and helped cement his place in Time Magazine's list of the 100 most important people of the last century, one of only six actors to be included in the list. But was Brando rewarded for his groundbreaking revolutionary performance with an Oscar? Of course not. In the face of change, the Academy did what it's always done. They gave the award to a stalwart of the old way, Although, to be fair, they gave it to the man who likely taught Brando a thing or two about playing it cool, Humphrey Bogart. Hello and welcome to For Your Reconsideration, the podcast where we re-examine best picture races and give ourselves the authority to determine if the Academy got it right. Season two, baby. Season two. We are back. I'm Devin. And I'm Kyle. And uh, this is the podcast. And we hope you guys have been excited for it to come back because now it's back. Welcome to any new listeners. Yes, welcome. And then welcome back to the old guys who suffered through us. Yes. (laughs) We're back and we're better than ever, baby. Yeah. And today we are talking about the 1952 Oscars, uh, the 24th Academy Awards presented honoring the the films from the best films from 1951. So let's uh let's talk about 1951. Let's talk shall we? Let's be clear. Also, I wanna point out we are not gonna change how we title our episodes. We go by the year of the Academy Award Academy Award ceremony. Yes. But obviously that means we talk about the previous year in film. Mm -hmm. Partly that is to do er, in the early years of the Academy Awards. It wasn't one calendar year that they honored. So we we go by the date of when the awards were presented to avoid confusion for those early episodes. Right. And this like this what this Oscar just happened was the 2018 Oscars. Right. About the year in 2017 movies. Right. But we wouldn't be able to reevaluate it until 2028. For sure, but you know, I'm just giving reference to like how people look at it. Like, yes, okay. Even though it's called the 2018 Oscars, it's about the year of 2017 in movies. Yes. All right. So now that that's settled, now haters. That, there was a, okay. I don't want to. I thought there was a hater. He wasn't a hater. He gave us a five star review. So oh hey, he's a fan. Well, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Anyone else wants to give a five star review? Uh, please, please do. do. Yeah. It, it helps us reach more listeners, so absolutely, really, really appreciate it. And it just makes us feel good inside. A little bit, honestly, mm-hmm. except for when you tell me that a guy told us that uh, he was confused about our episode titles, and now apparently it's a five-star review. 
I told you that I told you that's why I didn't respond because I was like, he gives five star reviews. I'm not going to get upset about it. Oh, okay. Well, then just in case anybody else is wondering, that's the real voice. I'm not trying trying to call out this soul listener, obviously. No. Just giving a little bit of information, maybe maybe things we didn't address in season one of why we do things the way we do. That's true. That's true. That's fair. Do you want to learn about 1951 though? Were you there? I was not. Me either. Um, so some things that were going on, just like ongoing, uh, we got the Cold War happening, so that's fun. Uh, we got the Korean War, a hot war, as they're called, <laughs> happening. And we also had the Red Scare, where um, people were just very afraid of communists in our midst. Right. Sounds like a scary time to be alive, honestly. Yeah, it does. It does sound not fun. Yeah. But uh, it's like the golden age of life in America or something, right? right. Isn't that like the ideal? Was this all, all this stuff happening also while like the characters from Happy Days were existing? Uh, well, I mean, Happy Days came out in the seventies. It was about the fifties. It was about Let's the fifties. That. Yes. That's true. So they, I mean, they were they were having a fun time. Yeah. So it was just like now, like Trump's our president, and like there's a lot of scary shit happening. But it's like I'm still living my own little life here. Mm-hmm. You know, we're still how having the guys, fun. That's probably how the guys in Happy Days kind of. Those are fictional characters, so I just think that we should like keep that in mind. I'm just saying, you know, when things get hot, you know, when things get heated, when there's a lot of shit going on, just stay cool like the Fonz. I think that's that's sage advice. That's great. We should put that on a bumper sticker. <laughs> Sell some podcast merch. There we go. Oh, merch. Yeah, I don't think we can do that. We don't have license for the Fonz. Oh. Okay. So instead, let me tell you about some other notable things that happened during the year. Do you want to like silence your cell phone while we record a podcast? Um, I'd like you to not call out the fact that they went off. No one heard that. <laughs> I mean, you didn't. You didn't silence. What did you do? I moved it further. That does not fix the problem. There's when you swipe up. There's a little like half moon. You just click it, and then your phone is completely silent until you turn it back on. You're having fun. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> In 1951, so on March 29th, uh, Ethel and Julius Rosenberg were convicted of conspiracy to commit espionage. And on April 5th, they were sentenced to receive the death penalty. Mm. That's kind of a... Yeah, it's a big one. A famous case. On October 15th, I Love Lucy made its television debut on CBS. They were happy, too. Mm Mm-hmm. Things worked out well for them. And on December 31st, the very last day of the year, the Marshall Plan expired after distributing more than $13.3 billion in... uh, foreign aid to rebuild Europe after World War II. So we finished up rebuilding Europe. It was all rebuilt. It wasn't, actually. We just yeah. stopped giving them money. There you go. In 1952? Or 1951? yeah. The end of 1951. I feel, I feel like we weren't even really invested. No. Okay. We were like, mm, you got it from here, right? I don't... Right. Oh, okay. I mean, we gave them $13.3 billion, which in 1951 had to be like a lot of money. Well, yeah I mean. <laughs> there's a lot of money now <laughs> well there was any hiding that fact uh okay okay what so moving on to the year in film i've just got one little notable thing that happened this year the wilhelm scream one of the most frequently used stock sound effects was used for the first time in the film Distant Drums. However, it did not get its name until The Charge at Feather River in 1953. Awesome. You know what? I'm going to play that right now for our listeners. Okay. Isn't that great, guys? Do you recognize yeah, so you, it? You probably heard it for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now for the, the top grossing films of 1951, we got number 10. Pandora and the Flying Dutchman. 
so mm-hmm. sad we didn't watch that. Right. <laughs> I just really want to know what that's about. Okay. Number nine, Strangers on a Train. Number eight, A Place in the Sun. Number seven, The African Queen. Number six, An American in Paris. Oh, wow. Number five, David and Bathsheba. <laughs> that's another Bible movie. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> number four, A Streetcar Named Desire. Oh, my God. I think I know where this is going. Number three, Showboat. Okay. Uh, number two, Alice in Wonderland. And number one, Quo Vadis. Yeah, I, that's kind of where I figured this was going. Um, Sure. First, one of the first biblical epics, right? I mean, yeah. It was definitely an epic. I just think some of these other movies also were were big. I mean, not as big as that, I guess. Right. I'll talk about Kovacs when we talk about and, it. And I'm surprised American Paris was, like, honestly so low on that list. I mean, number six, probably, obviously. I mean, it's it, a huge feat, but. Yeah, it made money. Yeah. Um. So some people making their notable film debuts in 1951. We have Jeff Bridges. Leslie Caron, who made her debut in An American in Paris. John Cassavetes, James Dean, Grace Kelly, and then for Star Trek fans, both Leonard Nimoy and William Shatner made their film debuts in 1951. Awesome. So there we go. That's the year in film. Now moving on to the actual ceremony, the 24th Academy Awards. So a few fun facts about the actual ceremony. Um, An American in Paris and A Place in the Sun each won six awards. Humphrey Bogart, who won for Best Lead Actor for The African Queen, was the last man born in the 19th century to win a leading role Oscar. An American in Paris became the second color film to win Best Picture after 1939's Gone with the Wind. And Gene Kelly received an honorary award for, quote, his versatility as an actor, singer, director, and dancer, and specifically for his brilliant achievements in the art of choreography on film, end quote. And that would end up being his only Oscar. Oh, wow. Okay. So I guess I was reading this thing. They said that um, they thought an American in Paris, like, wasn't going to win anything. So that's the reason they, like, gave the honorary award to Gene Kelly to, like, honor his, like, choreography and, like, whatever, because I didn't think that. An American in Paris was going to win. So, shows what they know. So, now let's talk about the films that were nominated. Okay. First up, we have Decision Before Dawn, released by 20th Century Fox, directed by Anatoly, Anatoly Litvak. That's probably not correct at all. <laughs> Uh, synopsis as the u.s army approaches nazi germany they recruit german prisoners to spy behind german lines so some, wow that's a very well that's okay. a, that's accurate that's I mean, what happens that's not selling anything though i mean no but it is but it's, uh, yeah. it's the premise of the film yes so the film was adapted by jack rollins although that's uncredited and peter vitriol vitriol Peter V from the novel. <laughs> wait, 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 why is the guy uncredited? I don't know. According to the internet, he didn't get a credit. Was it like for some it. blacklist shit? No, I don't think so. Oh, okay. Maybe. I didn't investigate any further. <laughs> Just like, okay, no credit for this I was guy. Like, a lot of times people don't I'll get give credit. him credit by saying his name on our <laughs> podcast. <laughs> yeah. Uh, retributions. Okay. It was adapted by the novel Call It Treason by George Howe. The movie was filmed on location in Europe where many cities were still in ruins. Uh, I guess that 13.3 billion didn't do anything or everything. I should say did some things. And there was a lot of German 
World War II military equipment available to use as well. It's also one of the first films after World War II to portray the German people outside of the Nazi regime in a sympathetic light. This one is fun. The star of the film, Oscar Werner, was an avowed pacifist and hated the Nazi regime. He eventually was forced to join the army, but he got out of duty by feigning incompetence. In fact, the date his character was captured in the film is the same date that Werner deserted his own post. Moreover, he married Elizabeth Kalina, a half-Jewish actress, which further endangered his life. Their daughter, Eleanor, was born in 1944, and the young family spent much of their time in the Vienna woods hiding from both the Russians and the Germans after the city was shelled. So when he came to Hollywood, he signed a seven-year contract with 20th Century Fox, but this was the only picture that ever came out of it. His experiences soured him on the film, and he spent much of his career on the stage. However, he would later go on to find success with uh, Francois, Francois Truffaut in Jules and Jim in Fahrenheit 451. Right. Okay. I just thought that was interesting. Yeah, that was I really thought he interesting. was very good. I kind of didn't know who you were talking about at first. I missed the beginning. Okay. But uh, when you brought around Jules and Jim, yeah. Uh, many people were surprised by this film's Best Picture nomination, and many people assumed that it was only because of the aggressive campaigning of Daryl Zanuck. He took out, like, big ads and sure. pushed it. Uh, but since the instigation of the five Best Picture nominees for the Academy Awards in 1944, this was the first Best Film nominee to only be nominated in one other category. The next instance of this occurred in 1994, when Four Weddings and a Funeral only picked up two nominations. What other... Uh, award was it nominated for? That's a great Dang, question. Hmm. It's the uncredited author all over again. Guys, I am sorry for this dead air while Devin looks up for facts. You know, I guess it's my job on this podcast to ask the hard hitting questions. <laughs> Wow. Film editing. Film editing. <laughs> <laughs> Don't the best pictures like typically get an editing nod? Like, well, usually they history? get more. I mean, well, no, no, no. <laughs> but I mean, usually does like, isn't that a part of it? I don't know. Yeah. Not, like a common one though. Like it gets yeah. best picture nomination and it also gets best editing for some reason. Yeah. But I mean, I think the point of that too is that like most films, if they're nominated for Best Picture, they're also nominated in like multiple other categories. Yeah. Is all no, the for other sure. No, I understand were. that. I understand that. Just wish I would know which categories. Um. So yeah, Decision Before Dawn. I have to say, going into watching it, I'd never heard of it. I didn't know anything about it. And I was very, very pleasantly surprised. In fact, it goes far to say is like, I really loved this movie. I think that... It's great. It does a great job of being um, suspenseful, of building tension in ways that I think even like uh, modern spy films don't always do, you know? Like I was really like nervous multiple times during the film. And I also think that... Like what what made you nervous? Well, just like that he was going to get caught by the Nazis, that he was going to die that you know what i mean like that kind of stuff the fa- it had stakes yeah it had stakes you really cared about him and what i like too so in the film the the main character uh what's the nickname they give him like happy happy he um is a was a german soldier who gets kidnapped or not kidnapped i guess what is it called when you get he's a prisoner of war or whatever man napped and um 
uh, by the Americans. And then they like send him back in as a spy to try to find out information because they're invading Germany at this point. But he is the main character and he's a, like at first I was, I thought it was going to be about that American guy. And I was like, I don't really like him. So I don't care about this at all. So like for the first like 20 minutes, I was just like, it was boring. But then like when it switched to being about the German kid, I thought it like really changed because it's, I just think that like most of the time with, with these kind of like spy thrillers where you have a, you have a character who turns against his own country or her own country to spy against them. It's because that, that organization has done something to like personally, personally affect that person or their family. And that's why it's like personal revenge that they turn against them and work for this other country. But for him, it was really that he loved his country so much. He loved Germany that he didn't want to see it continue to be ripped apart the way that it was. He wanted the war to end and he wanted the German people because the German people were suffering immensely during the war and obviously under the Nazi regime. So it was more about him trying to protect the norm, like the regular citizens of Germany and also just protecting his country from being destroyed any more than it already had been. And I think the fact that it was actually filmed in Germany where you can see the devastation that happened to those cities is very interesting too, because I think, I think too often it's easy to, I mean like technically in another world war two movie, he would just be considered a Nazi because he's fighting for the Nazis and for Germany. But I think that it's really interesting to like, look at the level, the, like the, I'm trying, what is the word I'm looking for? I don't know complexities of that and say like he was a person and he had feelings about what was happening and he did what he thought was right and it's just an interesting character study in my opinion and I think that I think it's so interesting that that happened in 1951 that they made a film like that because it seems like people probably had some like harsh feelings following World War II sure so I think it's great that they like gave a sympathetic character and like a more nuanced portrayal of what people who lived through Nazi Germany we're actually experiencing. Right. I agree with, I agree with almost everything you said, except the kind of the opposite. Like I think they half-assed it. Oh really? Yeah. I think, I think it was daring to do the type of story that, as you mentioned, do the type of story they did just like six years after the war. Um, but the fact that they needed an American white man to like, yeah, to just like, I don't know why I said white man. In Hollywood at this time, they're all white. <laughs> I don't know why I said white. Everyone's white. But there were like, no servants I was just giving, in this movie. He's like a so. typical, just like basic dude, right? And he's uh, very like, I'm American, right? And <laughs> it, I mean, it opens up with actually, it opens up with a firing squad, and then it cuts, then it's yeah. him, and then he has like a narration, and we follow his like boring ass journey into this like new post he has, where yes, he's helping train and work with these German spies, but like other than that. Which, you know, my biggest problem is like, I don't know what he adds to the movie. I agree with that. And he's billed as like the main character. Like, yeah. I think Rennick is his name. Yeah. Colonel Rennick or something like that. And he's just, it's just like, oh, we're following this guy. But then it's like, wait, no, we're getting this like shift to this happy guy, the, the, German, uh, the German soldier. And then, yeah, like 80% of the movie is like just about Rennick. But the fact that we were like spent so much dull time going in there. You mean 80% was about happy? I'm sorry. It was about ha happy. I'm sorry. It was about happy. The German soldier, which is the, I mean that 80, it's probably like 70%, but that 70% of the movie is great. Yeah. But unfortunately like the lead in and then uh spoiler alert, happy doesn't quite make it out. Right. Uh, and it ends with Rennick again, just being like, 
you know, wow, I am a good American for like putting faith in this German ally. I hope the best for him wherever he is today. Well, like he's dead. Yeah, right. <laughs> so it's like just the fact that we have to be like handheld through this process. Like I yeah. admire them. I, I admire them for like daring to tell this story, but like it just seems half hearted in its execution of it because we didn't need that. We could have just followed Happy's story through the whole thing. We didn't need this American lead in for the show, well, which is just deceiving, but like annoying at the I same time. I think though the thing is in 1951, they did need that American lead. You know what I mean? I think no, that. No, I know. I understand okay. that. Like, I trust me, I get it. I know why they did it. I just wish they wouldn't have. No, I think like, yeah, you're right. Like that part doesn't hold up. And I do think the beginning really suffers because it, and it is such like a tonal shift because you're, you think the movie is about this American guy because you've, he's narrating, you know what I mean? Like it's about him, but then right. he literally is well, not the way, in the he entire has like two voiceovers, by the way. Yeah. Just the beginning and the end. Yeah. And then I don't know why that, I don't know. I just don't know why that device is introduced. It didn't need to be there. <laughs> it didn't need, it never needed to be there. It was such like a patriotic voiceover. I would say like just, 80% of the time voiceover doesn't need to be there. You don't well, need narration. I, I know, but I'm just like, you know, in shitty movies. Yeah. Yeah. We're talking about best picture winners here and nominations okay okay and like the movie has like the movie opens up again on a firing squad but doesn't have the like see my problem is they didn't need to allude to like obviously happy is probably also going to end up in front of a firing squad if he's lucky right and like well for, for true but i think you started the movie for that reason i think it's almost yeah. like a, a you know it's bookended mm -hmm. by the by a firing squad but we don't see that. And like, we don't think we need to see it necessarily. But again, just the fact that it ends on Colonel Rennick, just like saying some positive ending shit, like really took away from my experience of this movie. Like, do you know what I mean? It just, yeah. it switches. Like we know we love happy at this point. Like we are, we are with happy, mm -hmm. which is crazy. Cause he's a Nazi. Well, <laughs> well yeah. no, he's no. a German. He's a German. He's a German. I mean, you know, you know what I mean? Uh, I'm not saying every, you know, he literally I mean. was working against but the Nazis. You know Nazis. what I mean though? Like, you know what I mean? I know. I know. But you know what I mean? All right. So <laughs> he like basically uh, like sentenced his own father to die and to help America. I mean, yeah. So I, I don't think we should I'm call him a Nazi. I, I could be, I'm throwing that word around, but I mean, he fought for the wrong side. He was German. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> what was he supposed to do? You know, uh, I don't think the Nazis gave you a choice if you wanted to join or not. Uh, you know, I'm just they weren't big on choices. But it was just like, like he was a Nazi, okay? No, but he he was German. But I mean, like he was the the bad guy in most of these war films, right? Right. And I I was with him. I loved his story. And then yeah, just the fact that it tries to just throw this like happy ending on clearly like. I think you're gonna have this argument for all these. Like it's 1951. All these movies have Hollywood endings. Uh, no, I mean. <laughs> That's fair. I just hate the like the the use of this Reddit character, and it's just it's just another instance where like we have to focus on him. When we know what's truly going on. Like maybe they wanted to leave it up to the audience. Like we obviously know what's happening to Happy or what's going to happen to Happy. Mm -hmm. But just the fact that it like tries to make you not think about that is divisive and like a problem for me. Okay. So when we remake it, did you say you loved this movie? I really did. I loved, okay, I will rephrase that. I loved the middle section of right. this movie. Right, I did too. I thought it was great. I don't have as much of a problem with the ending as you did. I saw the writing on the wall that Happy probably was not going to make it through this movie. Right. 
And so I kind of understood that the Renick was going to have to be the person that we ended on. So I, I don't, I don't hate the ending, but I do. I think the stuff with happy is much stronger than anything else with Renick. So sure. Amen. I would say this is like two thirds of a great movie. Yeah. Well, you know, a good movie. Okay. <laughs> Let's see what other people thought of it. Okay. On Rotten Tomatoes, it has an audience score of 68% and a critic score of 100%, but that is out of only five reviews. Right. I can't trust these older Rotten Tomato scores. I'm sorry. Well, and some of them are reviews that are contemporary added right. in there. Right. This is not a movie that contemporary critics have gone back to, to write reviews of. Right. So. Like, that's, you know, that's what I'm saying. It's right, like so right. weighted. Um, it's not listed on any notable lists or anything like that. Not preserved mm -hmm. anywhere. At the box office, it made $1.55 So basically everyone is agreeing with me. Well, but I really feel like this is a movie that, like, I didn't know anything about it, and I wasn't really, like, looking forward to it, but I was, I was pleasantly surprised, and I enjoyed myself watching it. So sure. I think that it is something that, if you're really trying to, like, fill out your film history knowledge, add this one in there, you know? If you're really just like flushing it out. That's like so bold. We've done like eight episodes. If you've already seen like every other movie we've talked about, go ahead and watch Decision Before It's On too. I'm not going to recommend that. But I, I you know, if, if you tend to follow Devin's opinions, like, sure, you like it. If you like spy movies, yeah, you'll it's, like it's it. It's not a bad. Yeah, right. It's a good spy movie. Yeah. It's a good spy movie. I will say that. All right. Next up, we have A Place in the Sun. A Paramount Picture, directed by George Stevens, who also won the Oscar for Best Director for this film. Synopsis, a poor boy gets a job working for his rich uncle and ends up falling in love with two women. It's a very polite way of explaining the premise of this movie. <laughs> so it's based on the 1925 novel An American Tragedy by Theodore Dreiser and the 1926 play also titled An American Tragedy. I can't talk. American what? An American tragedy. Something about strategy? Yep. That original story is based on the real life case of Chester Gillette, who murdered his pregnant girlfriend, Grace Brown, in 1906. Mm. So, should have warned you, spoiler alert, that is the plot. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it happens here. Sure. Uh, this was the first film to win the Golden Globe for Best Picture Drama when the awards were split into separate categories that year. So before it was just one category, and then they split into drama and comedy. Okay. It's wow. the first one to That's win drama. Back, huh? mm -hmm. Cool. Although the film was released in 1951, it was shot in 1949. Paramount Studios had already released its blockbuster Sunset Boulevard in 1950 when this film wrapped. The studio did not want what was sure to be another blockbuster in, the in this film competing for Oscars with Sunset Boulevard. So it waited until 1951 to release the film. That's interesting. Which is smart, because it certainly would have been competing with Sunset Boulevard. Right, right. <laughs> Um, in her autobiography, Shelley Winters described George Stevens' way of working as, quote, he would discuss the scene but not the lines and would photograph the second or third rehearsal so the scene had an almost improvisational quality. Stevens would print the first take, then spend the next three hours minutely rehearsing the scene, then film it again. He explained to me that in this way, he often got actors unplanned reactions that were spontaneous and human and often exactly right. And often when... And often when the actors over over overthink or plan their reactions, <laughs> they aren't as good, end quote. 
the production code administration, so the, the production code was still in effect this time. So they raised concerns over the scene in which Alice visits a doctor. They objected to the line, quote, doctor, you've got to help me. In the finished film, the line was changed to somebody's got to help me. And while the implication is that she's seeking an abortion is clear, it's vague enough to please the censors. That's interesting because I didn't feel it was very vague at all. No, I thought it was pretty. Like, I know there was no direct dialogue, but yeah. it was like, we, like it, it would be so obvious to know what's going on. Here. Right. Which I think is interesting. I do think it's interesting. A lot of these films, I'm like, we're really, really pushing it with the production code. You know, right, yeah. they got a lot of stuff through. Right. Uh, Paramount Studios removed the name of actress Anne Revere in the role of Montgomery Cliff's mother from the film's publicity due to the fact that she refused to testify and cooperate with the House Un-American Activities Committee. Another victim of Hollywood's blacklist of 300 names, she would not appear in another film until the 1970s. Wow. At the time of release, A Place in the Sun was a commercial and critical success. However, many critics agree that it has not held up over time. Reappraisals of the film find that much of what was exciting about the film in 1951 is not as potent as in the tw- as in the 21st century. Critics cite the slow pace. So that could be said for any of these movies. <laughs> Critics cite the slow pace, the exaggerated melodrama, and the outdated social commentary as qualities present in A Place in the Sun that are not present in the great films of the era, such as those by Alfred Hitchcock and Elia Kazan. Sure. Although the performances by Montgomery Clift, Elizabeth Taylor, and Shelley Winters continue to receive praise. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to say another thing about George Stevens real quick, the director. He is one of the five came five that came back, whatever the documentary about the directors who went and volunteered their service for World War II. And he, I think he was really affected by his, his time there. Um, so well, he, I guess he was one of the ones that he made like happier, like traditional Hollywood movies before he went. Mm. And he came back and he just released these kind of more somber or reflection on American life type of movies afterwards. Mm-hmm. So I just thought that was like that very is, evident while watching this movie. Yeah. This is not a, not a happy, happy movie. Not a happy one at all. Oh yeah. You're okay. So Devin and I, before this podcast, we decided we were switch off of who talks first, but then I decided while you were talking last time that I actually didn't want to do that. I like when you talk first. So I'm going to talk first. Yeah. Again. Every time. So just okay. to give you guys a heads up, Devin's always going to lead the way. Like everything else. Cool. Come um, in a race. I think I could beat you in a race. <laughs> I'm just probably because I'm not going to run anywhere. <laughs> fair, fair. Well, okay. If we're being chased by some, okay, move on. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> well, I think I, that works out because I think that last little thing that I read about um, the reappraisals um, kind of leads into my feelings about it. I think that. I can see why people really loved it in 1951. I think especially when you're considering the fact that the production code had been in effect for a while at this point. Right. And so this was very, this was like a very sexy film, I think, in 1951. One, because Montgomery Clift and Elizabeth Taylor are two of the most like beautiful people mm-hmm. that have ever, they're just beautiful. So, and it, and it talk, I mean, it's dealing with sexuality, it's dealing with sex in a way that, many movies in the 1950s were not. This was, I mean, blatantly they're saying that he slept with Shelley Winters at least, you know, although they pretty much, I don't think they're saying that Elizabeth Taylor slept with him, but like it's dealing with sexuality and sexuality within young, young unmarried people. And so I think that that is what's exciting about it. I think that, you know, it's a melodrama, which was more popular back then. 
Right, but it's got it's got twists and turns. It's got twists and turns. It definitely. I mean, I didn't know where it was going and when it went, where it right, went. I was like, right. oh, okay, <laughs> like that's right. It's definitely interesting. It's a interesting story. It's a good story. I think that uh, Montgomery Cliff. I think the performances are all really great, especially from the three leads. You can disagree with me if you want, but <laughs> I think that they're good. And on my own superficial level. I'm never going to be mad about watching Elizabeth Taylor in really great costumes, <laughs> just like hanging out, you know? Right, right. So. I mean, she lights up the screen. She's so beautiful. Like, we're not saying anything new, right? Right. Now. I'm not. This is yeah. like a huge <laughs> revelation that Elizabeth Taylor is beautiful. But, <laughs> but so was Montgomery Clift. I know you don't <sighs> like him, but his face is like perfect. Dude, he is a he is a poor man's Tom Joad. Like, that, that, that doesn't make a lot of sense, but. <laughs> He's like a poor man's Henry Fonda. I so feel you know, like the, I, like feel I don't like find he- Henry Fonda attractive. Oh, well, you. Well, he's like fine, but I think Montgomery. You know I mean? It's is like, no, looking. but he's literally like the He's a younger, more handsome version of Henry Fonda. Like the. Yeah. The delivery is all the same. Like he's doing nothing new for me. I thought. Oh, you're I talking thought, about his performance? Yes. Sorry. I'm and talking I about his face. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, I was also talking about his looks, but I have not. Like, I, will, I will not lie. I've not seen another Montgomery Cliff movie unless. No, I you randomly either. tell me it might be, I maybe have, but wow, I just felt like you are just like Henry Fonda light, and I'm not into it. And not to be like, oh, I think Henry Fonda is the greatest actor. It's just like I got like this felt like a Tom like Tom Job like, hmm, in in several ways, but you know, um, yeah, most of all the the appearance and and delivery of the character, and it's just, uh. I felt that he was not personally strong enough to lead what I thought like could have been an Oscar winning performance. Yeah. Like, this character really had a lot to work with and Montgomery Clift, I don't think was the right person to deliver it. See now, like I wasn't, I don't think that he was very good when the movie started, like the beginning stuff. I was just like not on board with his choices. Sure. But I do think that when it got more into like the meat of the actual story of like the love triangle and the, the murder and whatnot. So, a, are you no. sure you weren't just like going with the story? Because I was too. I mean, like, do you maybe, know what I mean? I was, yeah. I was, I was entranced by the story, but him as an actor, I was just like, oh my god, give me something. I thought his his like final scene when he's about to be put to death when he's in the prison and Elizabeth Taylor comes to visit him. So you thought he was good for sixty seconds of this movie? Well. <laughs> great i thought it was really good because he literally like has no lines in that scene she's just talking and he's like no reacting and i thought that that i thought that was really he's good a, he's probably a reactor yeah but when you're given the most lines of the script you should also just probably be like a good actor like i'm sorry Fair. it sounds like i'm just taking a dump a on Montgomery actor, Cliff, but like though. i don't think he was the right person for this role i really don't um even if you like that one scene that's like one scene out of 80 you know what i mean like it's just well, he got all he got the the butts in the seats. You know what I mean? Like Did he the, though? Like, so was he? Montgomery Clift was like a huge. Okay, see, like, I feel bad. I don't know. I guess I don't know yeah. about that. He was Maybe a he what do you call him? Like matinee idols him. or whatever. Like the teen girls liked Montgomery okay. Clift. Fair and fair. As they it's usually fair. like pretty gay boys. You know, that's what teen girls are into. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's good. Um, but yeah. So yeah, is that all you had to say about a place in the sun? I mean, <laughs> you know, like again, I think it has a really great t- plot. I could definitely see how you know it could almost be remade today, and people audiences would still love it. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Um, I kind of dis like I don't think it feel felt stale. Like I don't feel like it felt trapped in that time. I really didn't. 
I felt like it was a story that could have been told at any point. I really? guess. Well, not in the way some of the characters acted. Right. Because it was very just like, okay, this is the. I mean, the whole like conflict wouldn't work outside of the fifties. Because she would just like have the baby, you know what I mean? Or it'd be easier to get an abortion or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, maybe you'd have to switch up the conflict there a little yeah. bit. Can we talk about how like fucked up the script was? <laughs> like as far as just the things people were saying. Yeah. What do you, do you have an example? Um, like, oh wait, wrong movie. Okay. Never mind. Cool. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, there was probably some fucked up shit in this one. I was gonna say, I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, never mind. Uh, hold that thought. I'm excited to hear. Oh, I know what movie you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, <laughs> so I don't know why I was thinking this one. It makes no <clears throat> sense now. <clears throat> All right. But yeah, no, a place in the sun. You know what I was thinking about? Like, it is very melodramatic, and I think that melodramas don't really exist anymore in the way that yeah. they did in the '50s. And so I think that's kind of what makes it feel very of its time because we just like wouldn't. It's a type of acting style, like what I kind of referenced in the in the intro. It's this acting style that's over the top, and then the situations are over the top, and everything is just like heightened right. in a way that we don't see much anymore. But the way that I look, like, I'm not gonna hold that against it because the analogy that I have is like, I'm not gonna get mad at a western for having too many shootouts. So I'm not gonna get right. mad at a melodrama for being too melodramatic. Like, right. it is what it is. That's the genre, and I think as a movie in that genre, it is one of the better melodramas that i've seen for sure and i mean honestly it's a great take an earlier take in hollywood an early hollywood take on the american dream in a very cool way yeah which i i, I could really appreciate actually a lot like you know tom joe's story and mm -hmm. uh grapes of wrath not that it's the same trajectory but you could see you wanted this guy to succeed you know he was there for like the right attentions like i didn't like what wait what, are you, what i are mean you? she's sorry you guys <laughs> this is not a video podcast but she's looking at me like she's judging me right now i just didn't really want him to succeed because he was kind of a dick who well, knocked someone up and then no, was like bye i know but like in a way it's like his american dream was you know want to one go make money yes but then he fell in love yes and like he knows that's also a part of his dream right and he never thought he but could then, get her. Exactly. Which is why he went with Shelly Which Winters. is like, you know what? That's a fact of life. Not to say like like everybody settles or anything like that. But like he he immediately had a connection with this woman. Mm -hmm. But then was just like. I think most men feel an immediate like, connection to Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> right. But there was no way in, his, in, in just anything that would ever lead him to think he could possibly end up with that girl. Like right now he just moved here. He does. He's just given a job. Like yeah. moments ago, you know, yeah. and you know, he'll never be able to reach the success that this young socialite is and her, you know, where she comes from her family, but then he meets this like wonderful woman at work and they, but then, you know, he's tempted like it's melodramatic, obviously, yeah. but yeah. it's like, you know what, whatever. I get it. I get it. Okay. There's just like other options that could have been explored before. No, no, no. I understand. But this was like, his American dream yes. and the American dream is a faulty thing anyway that yes. can be deconstructed a hundred thousand different ways can end up with many people but did. I kind of liked that this was at the forefront of this film mm -hmm. and it just went kind of a direction that I thought was like really interesting for 1951 yeah that's what's crazy because like you think about in 19 the 1950s like post-world war ii and it was supposed to be like all we're America and we're strong we're all just gonna make babies and enjoy factory life I don't know what people yeah. are saying 1950 but like 
you know what I mean? It was very like idyllic, like the cleavers, like that kind of thing. And then right. to have like this movie where it's like not, she's just kind of fucked up and like young people are having sex and it's leading to problems. And also aspiring to something beyond your means is also going to lead to problems. Yes. So I think it had important things to say. I think it did too. Cool. That's it. That's a place in the sun. That is a place in the sun. Let me see what other people thought about it. Um, and Rotten Tomatoes, it has an audience score of 84% and a critic score of 75%. Wow. That's interesting. Sorry. Um, you think that's, that's I'm just surprised or? it's lower than the audience score. Yes. Yeah, that is. Yeah. And that, and that might be contemporary critics going back and looking at it with contemporary. Stay eyes. out of it. I will let them know. You you should not be allowed to watch movies from the past and comment. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as we just did. All right. As far as its legacy on the American Film Institute's original list of the 100 greatest films, it was ranked at number 92 and then subsequently was bumped off by the time the 10 year anniversary list came around. On their list of the 100 greatest passions or greatest love stories, it was ranked at number 53. And on their list of the 50 greatest screen legends, Elizabeth Taylor is ranked at number seven. Oh, no, no Clift? No, Montgomery didn't make Mm, it. Crazy. Because it's 25 men, 25 women. Yeah, I bet Henry Henry Fonda was on that list. Yes. The OG Montgomery Montgomery Clift. Montgomery Clift died in like 1964, so he didn't really have as much time to make movies as the rest of these people did. Okay, fair. Um, it was preserved in the National Film Registry in 1991. At, wow, okay. At the box office, it made $4.2 million in 1951, ranked at number eight, and worldwide made $7 million. Right on. So that's a place in the sun. Now, moving on to talk about Jesus. What? Yay. Quo Vadis. Are you sure you're saying that right? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure not. That sounds right, though, doesn't it? I mean, I believe you. But you also said Quovetus for like every other time besides right now. I also right called now, Cimarron so. Samarian the entire time. That doesn't mean it yeah, was you right. knew it was Cimarron. You knew it was Cimarron. And I know you that just, this is Quovatus. You were just having brain farts the whole episode. Quovatus. Quovatus. We're just gonna go with it. And wasn't that in the titles? What isn't it like Q V O? That's just confusing. Well, that's like in the old like Roman things like U's or V's. No, those are fives. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so what was it? Quo Vadis, produced by MGM and directed by Mervyn Leroy. What's <laughs> <laughs> his name? <laughs> Sorry. Synopsis. A fierce Roman commander becomes infatuated with a beautiful Christian hostage and begins questioning the tyrannical leadership of the Emperor Nero. Ooh. Which, that's like the last 10 fucking minutes of a three-hour movie. Yeah. Three hours, guys. This movie's three hours. A three-hour movie. (laughs) Quo Vadis, which is Latin for Where Are You Going? Oh, okay. The screenplay was by John Lee Mahane, S.N. Birmahan, Berman. I'm sorry, I didn't put a space between his last name and the word and. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. Why are we saying this? I'm letting you know who wrote I always tell you who wrote it. Okay. S. N. Berman <laughs> and Sonia Levian. Okay. That's a lady. Yeah. I just wanted to point that out. 
Right. She probably helped out with a lot of the dialogue. No, she... Uh, <laughs> she... <laughs> I'm gonna assume not. Would that be awesome though? If she's the one that like punched up all the male dialogue, <laughs> she's like he needs to be more aggressive and creepy. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, it was adapted from the novel Quo Vadis from 1896 by Heinrich Seinkowitz. This is what I'm saying. Like, why do you say all these people's names when you don't have to? Because I'm telling people. You can say it's adapted from a novel. Fine. <laughs> or daft it. Adopted. It was adopted it was by just, a novel. Yeah. It was really cute. No, I'm just kidding. You can say that. You can keep saying the names. I will. These people have to get their dues, even if it's me butchering their names and not saying it correctly. I'm still giving them their dues. Sure. They have probably heard it their whole lives, honestly. They're all You're not dead. the first one. To They're all them. dead right now. Well, yeah. It's fine. Sure. Oh, it was such a huge box. This is the movie. <laughs> okay Uh, it was such a huge box office success that it was credited with single-handedly rescuing mgm from the brink of bankruptcy uh produced for seven million dollars the film was mgm's largest grocer since gone with the wind in 1939 wow uh one of those movies is much better than the other okay the film holds a record for the most costumes used in one movie do you want to guess how many costumes were used? 170. You're very off. Oh, okay. <laughs> 32,000. Holy shit. They had to dress all those extras. Oh, that's fair. And there were a lot of extras. There were like 30,000 extras. Right. Um, yeah, exactly. There, That was the next fact. There were 30,000 extras <laughs> appear in the movie. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm going to pull it together, guys. I promise. I like it. The movie, the film, the movie. <laughs> you know, I just want to tell for our listeners, uh, Devin just reads this all off of a computer screen. You know, she assembled it, obviously. But uh, I just want to throw it out. If you need help, I will. I, I'll gladly take over reading for a while if you just, if you need a break. No. Okay. I'm good. All right. All right. I'm so good. Get I got back it, to now. it then. Something about the movie film. The movie was filmed <laughs> at Sprawling Chinsectia. <laughs> what studios that had been opened by Benito Mussolini oh, in 1924 okay. as part of the dictator's master plan to make Rome the preeminent world capital. Well, he was actually shot on location. Yeah, it was filmed in Italy. That's awesome. Okay. Filming in post-war Italy offered the studios immense facilities and cheap Italian labor and extras <laughs> of which thousands were required. Hollywood would return to Chins. Ch- Chinsetia. Sorry, it's been a long time since I took Italian. (laughs) Often producing many of its biggest spectacles, including Helen of Troy in 1956, Ben Hur in 1959, and Cleopatra in 1963, the latter two dwarfing Quo Vadis in scale. And the studios would later be used by many Italian producers, including Federico Fellini. Who did? I don't know. Just wanted to say his name, huh? What, what was that joke? Someone pronounced it felony, Mr. Felony. Seriously? Yeah, yeah. Oh, so good. Uh, in the what f- was that? I don't know what that was about. Oh, my God. So it's going to bother me now. Was it like a Jeopardy clue? It was a Jeopardy clue. Oh, was it? Yeah. You're just saying that. Who knows if I'm right or wrong, though? Let's just go with them right. I have one more thing to read Include here. Include it in your five-star review, guys. <laughs> 
In the film, Nero remarks on the idea of creating an experience in order to gain inspiration and complains that for his conflag conflagration, he has not yet seen a burning city. Petronius replies, a burning city, that would be carrying out art for art's sake too far. Art for art's sake is the English translation of Ars Gratia Artis, which is the motto of MGM. Oh, wow. Isn't that fun? That is fun. I like that. Quo Vadis. And now you want me to talk about it, yep. right? Mm-hmm. This movie is three hours long. Nothing happens until the last 20 minutes. That's like 40. I mean, okay, there's like stuff happens, but it's like stuff that I don't care about. <laughs> like, and it's cool. Like the scale of everything is very cool. It's very, it is like, like astounding to look at these scenes of masses of people and realize like none of those are digital people. They're right. all real people right. standing in the Italian Weta sun. Weta was not involved in this. No. So like, cool. And they had lions and that had to be hard. And it's great that they did that. Um, and they, the burning of Rome was okay. Honestly, that could have been better. Cause like during most of the burning of Rome, it's just like, like that scene is like, it's literally like half an hour of Nero just like ranting as Rome burns. Okay. I feel like I, now I know which half hour I kind of missed. <laughs> that is Caught the tail end of that one. <laughs> and then the, the biggest problem with this film, besides all of that, like all of that could exist and already I'd be out. I'd be <laughs> out. But then the main character is the most offensive <laughs> man I've ever seen in a movie, honestly. That's not. No, 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 no. No, but he's like a, like, he's like, I've seen more offensive, like doing more offensive things, like murdering people or like mm -hmm. beating people or like whatever. He is the most offensive person who is supposed to be our hero. Yes. That I've ever seen in a movie. He's literally just, he just says things that you're like, is that a joke? Like we thought through the first hour that this was a comedy. Yeah. No. And it's, we really did. It's not, it's not hard to believe that was not a stretch by any means. No, it's not. That no. becomes clear as the movie goes on. Right. But the things he says, the way he treats specifically Deborah Kerr, but also just like all women and people is so outrageous that you're just like, this has to be like a satire on the way that men treat women. Right. But it's not, it's just literally how they chose to portray the hero of their movie interacting with the love interest of the movie. Right. Because then all of a sudden, like at first she's all like, get away from me as a normal person would be when someone's like, you're a hostage and I'm going to kidnap you. And then we'll be in love and have sex all the time. And she's like, no, thank you. I don't want to do that. And then five minutes later, she's like, you're right. I do love you. And you're like, what? Ha I literally said to you, I was like, did I miss something? No. And you were like, no, no. <laughs> like, okay. Not a single frame. It just makes no sense. Yeah. Like you can tell a man wrote it. You can tell. But like, I don't understand. Yeah. Well, I don't a understand. woman wrote it. <laughs> well, she had something to do with something. I don't know. She was actually one of the most prolific writers for MGM oh, in well, the twenties and thirties. Well, that's great. Then what the hell was, ha did she just like, did she just know her business? Like that's, you know what I mean? Probably like, because yeah. she was the only woman in the room. So she's like, just fine. like the most derogatory things towards women and like treating them like objects or property or anything. I mean, literally else. he and owns her as property. Yes. Yeah, so like, yeah, that's a plot point. Yes. He trades debt 
and like takes her on as his property or whatever. Yeah. Oh my God. And he thinks that's like a romantic move. Yeah. He's like, isn't this great? Now we can be together. And then and she's, she's like, like, you opposed, took me away from my family. And then she's like opposed to it. And then she kisses him two minutes later. So like, what does it fucking matter? Right? I know. It's guys, it's, it's ridiculous. Like it is insane. And like, you know, the bottom of your, you know, or in the back of your head, you're like, Oh, he's just because, you know, this is a Christian movie at the end of the day. It's like more than obvious through what's going on in the movie. Mm-hmm. This is a Christian film, which. <laughs> all right. But, uh, you know, in the back of your head, he's going to get transformed. He's not going to be this jerk he is now, but it just takes so long to get there. And we have to watch so many like stomach churning scenes of dialogue for coming from him. Yeah. It's it's insane. And literally, like, you think he's come around at one point and he's like, okay, you can have your Jesus. That's fine. As long as we're together. And then she's like, I love, I carry Jesus in my heart all the time. And then he's like, no, you cannot love another man right. besides me. And then he breaks her cross. And it's really just like, why is yeah. this happening, though? And I don't know who the actor is, but who's the guy who hosted, um, who hosted Match Game? Gene Rayburn. Gene Rayburn. It's as if Gene Rayburn was cast in this movie, and they're just like Gene Improv. <laughs> it was Robert Taylor was the actor. <laughs> <laughs> um, like that, but I'm saying like that's the vibe you get from this dude. Like not that Gene yeah. Rayburn's like the worst person, but if you ever watch old episodes of the Match Game, which you can on GSN, I love Gene he's Rayburn. He's a sleazy dude, but like in a fun way. <laughs> Oh my god! <laughs> All right. I Ooh. mean, I like Gene Rayburn. I will. I mean, yeah. I what I didn't like Robert Taylor in this, but like, um, I will say, uh, Peter Ustinov, yes. who plays Nero, best part of the movie. Yes. Well, second best part. The best part is the woman who plays his wife, who is just <laughs> like decked out in jewels, given like fierce side Stop. eye to everybody and no. watching these like leopard or their cheetahs listen i'm with you she's freaking fabulous she's fantastic she's I- like she should be iconic she should be but to say that she comes second to peter ustinov is like crazy because he gives like such a fantastic performance i mean in yeah this movie. he gives like a, i was just making like, a joke. He- she was my favorite part though <laughs> <laughs> i just mean like peter ustinov like did he win anything for this no, he didn't win. Let me was he nominated at least? Because um, I think he was nominated. That guy is a powerhouse. Like everything I've seen him in, he just he just takes yeah. over the screen and just chews it up in such a good, fascinating way. Like I, he is really he, good. He could as do Nero. anything. He could do anything. Yeah, both him it. and the guy who played Petronius were nominated for supporting actor. <sighs> Petronius is like one scene. It's not even that cool. With the scene where he kills himself. Yeah, I mean that's his only good scene of just like. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I could see that scene being not a performance. Every scene. I'm not even kidding you. Every scene Peter Ustinov in is, is is fantastic. Yes. Like I couldn't wait to get back to him. Yeah. But he was also definitely like a comic character too. Right. He was playing over the top. He yes. Was. For sure. But like it worked so well. Mm-hmm. And what was already this dialogue set us up for kind of like, oh, this is what this is like less Ten Commandments. More like history of the world part one. <laughs> like in a lot of ways though, it really yeah. feels like it. And I also the other thing that I was I was thinking as we were watching it, it was reminding me of Hail Caesar, the uh Coen Brothers movie from like a couple years ago. Where it's like old Hollywood and 
George Clooney is basically. I mean, it just seemed a lot like this movie where it's just like Toga and but I'm still an American film actor of the 50s. But it also reminded me of it because what I thought was interesting and the reason I like looked up these writers more is that like as they're talking about because the whole plot is like um, Christianity coming to to Rome. And as these characters are explaining Christianity, it's got like a I mean, it's all, you know, Bible accurate, but it has like a very almost like communist undertow to it about, Fair, yeah. you know, like everyone being equal and yeah. like loving everybody and everyone and like the rich shouldn't have all the power and that kind of thing that I was like, well, that's interesting because that's basically how um, Hail Caesar ends is him giving this speech within this movie that hey is we like, are not here to spoil <laughs> recent movies it's still been in, in years you know fair that's not really a movie you can spoil either because nothing really happens in that movie but anyway it just reminded me of that because it's <laughs> you like see, you gotta stop giving gestures where the audience can't see it like, <laughs> they I can make up what my gestures are in their head they can assume they just find like why is she pausing it does she have to burp like what is it this <laughs> <laughs> I'm not burping tonight. No, but I'm just saying it like it reminded me of that. Like, is this the way that these writers got in some of their beliefs by like disguising it as Jesus? And so it, I couldn't find that any of the writers actually were associated with the communist party. The quote, like um, they were Jewish, but the close I could find is that woman was a Russian Orthodox Jew and she had some ties to some, radical political parties but like no one was ever on any list nobody was ever okay so i just i don't know if like obviously not everyone who joined the communist party was ever you know what i mean like not everyone was persecuted or found or anything like that but i just thought it was interesting i was like maybe that's the thing that they did maybe that's how they tried to get out there i like that yeah especially from such a successful movie from that year yeah number one right yep that's number one okay all right let's get to the critics okay um, on Rotten Tomatoes, it has an audience score of 72% and a critic score of 88%. Um, <laughs> for Legacy, I just wrote none. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> it's not on any lists or, oh. or of anything. I suppose I could have looked up a list of like the highest I mean, budgeted movies. This is probably, well, sure, and it probably does have production stuff, but this is mm-hmm. definitely a forgotten movie. Mm-hmm. I've never heard this phrase on anybody's lips. Like, I don't know. Well, it's a phrase from the Bible. Well, yeah, sure, maybe in reference to that, but like not as right, far right. as like anyone talking about film or film history right no for sure yeah for sure i think like probably like this came out as a huge epic but then movies like ben-hur and cleopatra kind of if you're going to talk about an epic of that scale you're going to talk about those movies exactly but hey this is maybe the starting you know starting ground for all that so yeah you gotta start somewhere um at the box office it made 11.9 million dollars domestically and 21 million dollars worldwide and we're done now moving on to a streetcar named Desire. Okay. By Warner Brothers, <laughs> directed by Elia Kazan. Elia. Elia Kazan. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Sorry. Synopsis. Disturbed Blanche Dubois moves in with her sister in New Orleans and is tormented by her brutish brother-in-law while her reality crumbles around her. Very accurate. Yep. That is what happens in this movie. It's adapted from Tennessee Williams Pulitzer Prize winning 1947 play of the same name. Hmm. And most of the original Broadway cast reprised their roles, the major exception being the lead role of Blanche Dubois. In the original Broadway cast, the role was played by Jessica Tandy. 
but the studio decided they needed a bigger name. They needed star power sure. for the movie. So they cast Vivian Lee, who had played Blanche in the original London cast oh, that had awesome. been directed by Laurence Olivier. See, was that is husband. one. That was that's awesome because that is one thing I was kind of questioning was like I feel like they took a gamble on a lot of this cast, right? Yeah. Marlon Brando, Carl Mald, you know what I mean? Like they took a gamble on these guys. But I was like, I could see them putting someone bigger in there. But I was like, for her to come in and fucking compete with these guys who have been doing this for a while, like this, mm-hmm. you know, this dialogue, these characters. I was like, damn, she did a good job. But then it's cool to find out, you know, she she, had, had she did have experience. Yeah. And I'm glad they, you know, they could have just cast all names, but they didn't. I do think I do think it's interesting that they did keep so much of the original cast. Right. And I think that has a lot to do with, I mean a lot to do with how good this movie is, is one, they're all very good actors and two, they all had like lived in those roles yeah, for they, much longer than most they, film actors. Exactly. Do. Exactly. And I gotta be honest, it was probably a pretty cheap movie to make. Deborah Kerr was probably, oh, is that who played? I'm sorry, Vivian that. Lee. Vivian Lee. I'm sorry. Vivian Lee was probably the most expensive part by far of anything in yeah. the movie. You know yeah. what I mean? One set pretty much. There was a couple different locations, but one set for 95% yeah. of the movie. And then, Marlon Brando, who was nothing, you know, these other actors who were nothing at the time, mm-hmm. Ilya Kazan, like, you know, mm-hmm. it's just awesome what a success it became because of the talent, just straight up talent, not just the star power. Absolutely. Um, oh, th- <laughs> we weren't ready to talk about the movie yet. No, I'm sorry. that's okay. Um, like you're saying, at the time of the play and subsequent film, Marlon Brando is virtually unknown. This is the role that helped catapult him to Hollywood stardom and marked his first of four consecutive Oscar nominations. Oh. That concluded Holy when he shit. won his first Oscar for On the Waterfront in 1955. Wow. Yeah, he was nominated four years in a row. That's awesome. Composer Alex North wrote and recorded the first ever jazz-oriented film score for a dramatic picture for this wow, film. okay. Um, the production code censors also had some problems with this film. Just a few? Yeah. They demanded 68 script changes from the Broadway staging um, while the interference of the Catholic Legion of Decency led to even further cuts, most of them having to do with references to homosexuality and rape. In his memoirs, Tennessee Williams wrote that he liked the film, but he felt that it was, quote, slightly marred by the Hollywood ending. Sure. Of all the quotes suggested by the production code censors, the one that Eli Kazan and Tennessee Williams were most adamantly against was the rape of Blanche. Kazan threatened to walk off the production if the scene was to be deleted. And in, August, in an August 1950 missive to Joseph Breen, the director of the production code office, Williams wrote, The rape of Blanche by Stanley is a pivotal, integral truth in the play, without which the play loses its meaning, which is the ravishment of the tender, the sensitive, the delicate, by the savage and brutal forces of modern society. It is a poetic plea for comprehension. End quote. That was Tennessee Williams writing that? Yeah. No shit. He can, he can <laughs> write a note. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, and... Last thing, A Streetcar Named Desire won four awards at the 24th Academy Awards, and the film set an Oscar record when it became the first film to win in three acting categories, a feat which has only since been matched by Network. So Brando was the only one not to win? The only acting award it lost was Marlon Brando for lead actor. Oh, my God. All the other three won. And who did he lose to? Humphrey Bogart. Fair. But damn. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's wild. I, I did the math. I mean, you're like three out of four. I was like, you just said he got his first Oscar in 1955. No. He got two eventually. Humphrey I mean, Bogart only has that one. You he know? murdered it in this movie. Though. I mean, yeah, he's 
amazing. He's he's a very good actor. <laughs> he, Again, we're not like <laughs> stating yeah, right, new information, right. but <laughs> that Marlon oh. Brando can sure act. It's just he is a force to be reckoned with. But like at the same time, everyone, although he might have been in like a different level because of just energy and stuff mm-hmm. throughout and you know, plot wise, but and stuff, but everyone matched him, I think, in, in every big way too. Like yeah. the talent in this movie, as I just said, you know, two minutes ago. But I mean, it's just incredible to watch what i find interesting too is that so the other three so marlon brando kim hunter and carl malden were all um did the stanislavski method like that like being the character and that kind of stuff whereas vivian lee was a trained actress she'd gone to like acting school and sure that kind of stuff and so they're very like different styles of acting and i read that there was like some tension between her and the rest of the cast just because they were coming at it from such different angles sure but obviously everybody like got along in the ends and like it all worked out fine. But I, I think that that really does help the movie too, in a way that the rest of them all feel so natural and lived in. And then her character is someone who is acting all the time. She is in her right. own reality and creating this character of who she's being. So I feel like it fits so well to have her be the one who's like so affected and so like, you know, no, right. She's got these little I ticks and that kind of stuff. It's an exact mirror to, to who these characters are and the acting styles like mm-hmm. these are these these common folk these more um um you know living right now type of people and this is a very new method you know coming from you know and then she's like this classically trained mm-hmm. like but then she's also proper prim and proper from where you know her, right like it's it's perfect it's a perfect parallel mm-hmm. i truly love that i think that for sure aided in this in the storytelling in the in the movie and the performances yeah it's just great. Like, I feel like it's it's hard to talk about a movie that's just great because you just end up being like everything is, you know, the performances are great. The score was great. The production design was great. The blocking was great. Like, yeah, I don't know why, like this, like simple thing. I actually wrote that the blocking was really good for a decision before dawn, too. Was it like I thought it was a really well blocked movie. But like in this, it's it's perfection. It is perfection. There's so many times when like if you could just like take a picture and it would be like yeah perfect right every like right i mean it helps that this has been a pretty well restored movie okay yeah this is a movie that's been taken care it's of it's been taken care of a little bit uh uh not to say we really watched a bad print of any of these movies no actually but, all of them looks but good. this just looks so gorgeous i don't know what it is about because i don't know people Brando. he works with but well, yeah that's that makes helped. anything look more gorgeous <laughs> oh my god you're right but what can we really say um i think the rape was handled very effect like very effectively for the time period uh what it, you know you kind of you vibe it you're feeling what's going on he literally comes after her and then it cuts to this mirror shattering which blanche is in the mirror at the time and mm-hmm. blanche is shattering mm-hmm. and it's it's glorious. It's very poetic. Well, you know, when I complained in the beginning about Decision Before Dawn, and like I feel like it copped out on some things. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm so glad they didn't, even though they clearly had to make a lot of changes to get this from Broadway to Hollywood. Yeah. Um, I think it still got its main points across and across really well. Mm-hmm. And that being one of the most tragic endings. Absolutely. And I, I just want to say for people who might not know too, I mentioned before that their notes made them take out references to homosexuality. Um, in the play, Blanche's for her husband was gay, and she found him with another man, and that's when she called him weak and all this stuff, and he killed himself. So that was what they had to take out. Really, which is she? She's really tormented by a life-changing right um, moment for her. Which is still in there. She still feels um, 
responsible for his suicide because she called him she says that he has like sensitive right which i gotta be honest i didn't read that as you coded for gay. Okay. like i'm like oh i guess maybe in 1951 right. you might right. know i don't know but you know i was unlike some of the other movies where i had to put myself in this time period i didn't really feel that way with this i felt like i was watching a play like i felt yeah. like i was watching just a great performance like well and i mean when you have tennessee williams is like one of the greatest playwrights right. It just didn't Ever, feel dated. You know I mean. It felt like it could. It's timeless. It felt mm -hmm. timeless. It is. So like, yeah, little things like that that maybe like oh would be obvious if you're watching some other you know typical Hollywood flock or something, you could you know kind of mm -hmm. detect. You're looking for stuff like that to date. But this, yeah, again, it was like it was like watching a masterpiece. So yeah, I would say the only thing that like really marks it as being from the '50s is the way that they're so hesitant to spell out what they're actually talking about, like. The way they dance around saying that she was a prostitute, the way that they like sure. dance, you know what I mean? Like sure. that kind of stuff where like, it's like, wait, is this what you're saying? I think this no, is what you're saying. Sure. Okay. You're right. I that guess that's that what you're is saying. a little strong actually. It, that is throughout too. You're right. They're dancing around, but. But other than that, I mean like the themes hold up so well. And I think it's just, I just, I don't know. I forgot where I was going with what I was about to say, but it's an amazing film. It still holds up. I think to talk about the the most famous scene in the movie, which is like the Stella staircase scene. It is just like, it literally is just one of the best scenes in film. <laughs> like it just is great. Is this just because Brando has a shirt off? No, I mean, that doesn't hurt. But I actually, <laughs> I feel like the best part of that scene is Kim Hunter. Oh. The way she comes down the stairs to Dude, him. Dude, it's, you're right. It's everything. It's, it's so it's, good. It's awesome. Yeah. And it is, I mean, obviously Stanley Kowalski is a terrible human being. Obviously. He like beats his pregnant wife. He rapes his sister-in-law. He's a general dick to everybody. But I do think it's interesting, like by having Marlon Brando and having the chemistry that him and Kim Hunter have, you still also kind of see why she keeps going back to him. You understand yeah. what their relationship is without them having to like really explain it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I don't think it's always been terrible. I literally like, I do think Blanche caused a rift in their marriage. Like I sure. really do. I, I think he was probably a dick before that. Listen, yes. He was probably a dick in some way. Sure. But like we knew, you don't think he the, beat her before Blanche we knew got from there? the get go. That, I don't know. Her, the upstairs neighbor acted like that had happened before. No, I, I agree with that. But at the same time, the way Kim Hunter is describing her husband in the beginning, like mm -hmm. she truly loves him. Yes. And sure, like maybe that's foolish, but like love is a really fucked up and complicated thing that like I'm with it. I don't agree with how he treats her. I don't agree with sometimes how she stays with him. But like love is love and it's fucked up and like they are there are reasons that they are together i would say though i agree with blanche when she was said that's not love that's just lust like you're just you know what i mean like i don't i think that they just enjoyed having sex that, with each other is mostly only, what it was no that only gets through because marlon brand you think you think tennessee williams wrote that yeah. with marlon brando in mind? i'm sure he did <laughs> <laughs> but no i i mean like take away the fact that he's a beautiful man. Just like, I do think that like their, their relationship is more based on physical needs than it is on like emotional needs for sure. And sure. I think, I mean, that's her whole thing. I mean, I mean, he I think, needs her and she needs him. She yes. just needs him a little less than he needs her. Right. Yes. But I think that, I think that it's a relationship that 
unfortunately like, i think that people can relate to that kind of like i think that people get into relationships with bad people all the time and stay for reasons that they shouldn't obviously Fair. nothing's changed right since, like, like, that's and before true that. yeah. so i just think it's a great but i think it's a relationship that doesn't always get explored in yeah. media so no absolutely it was it felt so wrong but like right I mean, most of that's just because I'm Marlon Brando, though. No, I just mean, it's also, it was hard to watch, but it was like, I'm thankful that it's being shown. Right. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. And I will say one of the other changes um, in the movie, they gave like a Hollywood ending where she ends up leaving Stanley yeah. or like vows to leave him. Whereas in the play, she which stays with him. Which is awesome. Which is, a, which is, a, it just makes more sense within the narrative that she stays with him. Especially after sending her sister right. off to an insane asylum. Right. There's a lot going on. And I don't think they're going to be together forever by any means. But she he's surely gonna is going to leave him at that moment. He's he's probably going to kill himself. All the red flags. No, he's going to kill her and then himself because that's the kind of person he is. I mean, he's going like, to drink himself to death. and like. He's certainly going to kill her. I listen. I read a lot accident. about murders. <laughs> and he has all the signs of being a man who's going to kill his wife. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. What, is, what do critics think? You know what? They're not fans. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Okay. On Rotten Tomatoes, it has an audience score of 90% and a critic score of 98%. On the American Film Institute's original list of the 100 greatest films, it was ranked at number 45. And on the anniversary list, 10 years later, it was ranked at number 47. Oh, wow. It only dropped two spots. Yeah. Okay. On their list of the 100 greatest passions, it was ranked at number 67 which I'm not super sure what they, what love story is going on there, but sure. <laughs> uh, on their list of the greatest film scores, it was ranked at number 19 on their list of the 100 greatest quotes. It has two quotes on there at number 75 is I've always relied upon the kindness of strangers. Yeah. And at number 45, don't do it. Don't do it. Everybody t- <laughs> turned on the volume. <laughs> Just hold the mic away. I'm not going to do it. Do you want to do it? No. It's Stella. Hey, Stella (laughs) is the line. Which like, you know what? Go back. Even if you look at it on YouTube or whatnot, look at how this, because like pop culture has ruined Marlon Brando's delivery of this line. I feel like that always happens with lines that become famous. Fair enough. Is people forget what the delivery is. He is like, truly, you can hear the madness and the torment and the like, childlike manner of him yelling for his wife it is it's like a child delivery. yelling for his mother is what yeah. it's like and it, but like, like everyone's just like hey stella they turn it's it into like, like, like that at all <laughs> I, like i can't even i don't even want to do it because i can't do it justice no it's but great. please go look it up yeah or you it. know what i'll play it right here well that was fun <laughs> did you all hear the nuances we were discussing <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, so on AFI's list of the 50 greatest screen legends, Vivian Lee is ranked at number 16 and Marlon Brando is ranked at number four. And like I said, on in 1999, Time Magazine made a list of the 100. Oh, my God, I can't talk. Time Magazine What's made that? a list of the 100 most important people of the century. And only six actors made it on the list, one of whom made it on the list because he was the president. <laughs> It was Ronald Reagan, in case anyone was wondering. And then um, Marlon Brando was also included in that list. Okay. Do you want to know who the other actors were? No. It was Charlie Chaplin, Ronald Reagan, Lucille Ball, Frank Sinatra, and Marilyn Monroe. I don't even remember what you said this list was. It was the 100 most important people of the century. Oh, okay. 
You only named like six people. Those are the six actors that got named to oh, it. Oh, so, Only wow. six actors. The rest you were like... What? I'm sorry. Do you know who number one was? Albert Einstein. That's the level of list we're talking about. Like where, where, Gandhi was on this list. Where was Reagan? Somewhere behind... I don't... They weren't really ranked, I think. I don't know. Oh, so why is Albert Einstein number one? Because they had You're a number... Just that you know up? how they do like Time Magazine Person of the Year? Yeah. So at the end, in 1999, they did a Person of the Century. Mm-hmm. And that was Albert Einstein. Oh, okay. And then the rest were just... Like in the like most... In like the person of the year they also have like other 100 other people that were like important or whatever sure. they have like number one so there's like number one and then like 99 other people hmm. anywho <laughs> um a streetcar named desire was preserved in the national film registry in 1999 at the box office it made eight million dollars and now it's time to discuss the winner <sighs> an american i in- do the sound effects okay Winner. I mean, I already did it. <laughs> <laughs> An American in Paris, produced by MGM and directed by Vincente Minnelli, or Vincent Minnelli, <laughs> as we call him here in America. Wow, one name you pronounce correctly. <laughs> Outside of George Stevens. <laughs> Uh, synopsis three friends struggle to find work in paris things become more complicated when two of them fall in love with the same woman that's not accurate it's really not that one accurate. of them is already with the woman yeah and, and also they're like not that close of friends no it's not like some like weird love triangle like they don't find out until like the last 20 minutes that they were both dating the same woman. right and they'd only met like twice before that the two yeah. guys this movie's horseshit all right we're done see you next week <laughs> no i'm just kidding <laughs> So this movie was inspired by the 1928 orchestral composition in American in Paris by George Gershwin, which then he sold the rights, but he said he would only do it if they created built an entire musical around it, which used his other songs as well, which is what they did. Basically the studio just like really liked the, the name. Yeah. I mean, it's a good name. It's a good name. It's a good piece of music. You know what I mean? Yeah. <sighs> the 17 minute ballet sequence with sets and costumes referencing French painters. You know what? I listed all the painters' names here, and I'm just not oh, even going to try yeah. to. <laughs> Don't do it to us, baby. They include Renoir. Okay. I know that one. Renoir? Renoir. Renoir? <laughs> Renoir. <laughs> I don't know why you're saying it so weird. Renoir? Renoir. <laughs> Renoir. <laughs> <laughs> Oh uh, my Renoir God. and who else? Uh, Toulouse-Lautrec. Okay. And others. No Monet? Nope. Oh, I think on your screen it would say Monet. <laughs> <laughs> so that 17-minute ballet sequence is the climax of the film and cost the studio approximately $450,000 to produce. Production on the film was halted on September 15th, 1950, and while they rehearsed that ballet sequence and Manelli left to direct another film, father's little dividend, which is the sequel to father of the bride, which we discussed last season. Mm -hmm. And upon completion of that film in late October, he returned to film the ballet sequence for an American in Paris. So he shot. Oh, he, wow. During the rehearsal for the, during the rehearsal of the ballet sequence. That's insane. And awesome at the same time. Mm hmm. This is the first Best Picture Oscar winner to win Best Original Screenplay. And as of 2018, it's also the only full musical film to win Best Original Screenplay in the history of the Academy Awards. 
Wow. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. It was the first Best Picture to also win Best Screenplay? Best Original Screenplay. I think before Adapted Screenplays oh, had okay. won, this sure. is the first Original Screenplay. See, that's what people, like, they're always complaining about Hollywood, like, oh, all we do is remakes and adaptations. It's like, bitch, that's how we started. Yeah, that's all we've ever done. <laughs> right, that's like, all we've ever had. Yeah, that's nothing new. It's like not. Sorry. No. Get, like, whatever. You can't watch every movie. Don't watch the ones you don't want to watch. But if you're not going to watch things that are adapted from other things, it's going to really limit the movies you're watching. Amen. So, do you want me to talk about American in Paris? Oh, no, I mean, if, if you just want to stop now, we can. Well, I'm, I didn't know if you wanted to start. No, of course not. I already mentioned that earlier in this podcast. They remember. Yep. <laughs> okay. So, an American in Paris. Um, is Gene Kelly doing what Gene Kelly does best? Sing. Dancing. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Leslie Caron. Definitely dancing. Yeah, he's an amazing dancer, obviously, and also an amazing choreographer. And this movie, I mean, like, yes, it's a musical, and they sing some songs, and those right. songs are cute. Um, but it's about the dancing. This movie is one hundred percent about the dancing. Right. Which I read that like they didn't think that the studios would go for a dance movie, so he held a screening of the Red Shoes for all the like. It's like, have you heard that? No, I have not. I'm sorry. Oh, it's like a, I want to say Italian movie, but that's probably not accurate. So I'm not going to say that, but. It's like a foreign film that's a dance film that came out in the late 40s. Okay. And so he screened that for all the executives in the studio to like convince them that like a dance movie would work. Sure. And obviously they agreed I mean, with him because yeah, they financed definitely it. Definitely did. Mm-hmm. And it did. I mean, when you, I feel like if you hear like 17 minute ballet sequence, you're like, ugh. But it is the most be- one of the most beautiful sequences right. ever put to film. Right. Like, honestly, if we hadn't watched last, or not last season, I'm sorry, but if we hadn't watched recently Singing in the Rain, mm-hmm. I would have been like, oof. Yeah. Like, if you just told me about it. Yeah. But having seen Singing in the Rain, totally prepped for this, and it was beautiful. Yes. I would say, mm, I feel like this one is better than the one in Singing in the Rain. That's like Singing in the That's Rain. That's okay. Just the ballet sequence, I'm saying. Oh, I'm referring to that. Okay. <laughs> No, I think they're both great. They're both they're both different, which is cool. Mm-hmm. This one is cool because it is like he goes into the painting and then it's like different, yeah, um, artists represented and like their painting has come to life through dance, right. and it's a beautiful piece of music, um, and it's beautiful dancing. Outside of the dancing, um, there's just not much more outside of dancing for this movie. I think. Um, yeah. Like, the spectacle is really what ties things together. But you know what? That's great for me. Like, it honestly feels like, you know, it's more of like a la-la land than than a, uh, like, a typical, like, even, who's, sorry, who's the guy that did, like, Holiday Inn and Winter Snow thing? Bing Crosby? No, but the guy, Irving Berlin. Irving Berlin, okay. So it's, like, it's more, like, La La Land and like Irving Berlin where it just like yes. randomly breaks out into things and it's kind of cool and just mm-hmm. because of like the people kind of people focuses on maybe a little mm-hmm. bit um, but yeah like dialogue leaves a lot to be desired um, except for some great comedy by whoever plays his musician friend oh yeah that's an actual musician who didn't have a lot of acting experience but he was friends with Dude, Gershwin he's insane he's the he's so he's funny. so good mm-hmm. like the, like was he nominated by any chance I doubt it but, I don't think so like I mean, it doesn't matter. He would have lost to Carl Malden anyway, but... No, he wasn't nominated. Um, this guy just gave a toot of a performance because he only had... He, I think he only had, like, one big number. Yeah. Like, where he, he's, like... I guess, and that's, like, an homage to a Buster Keaton movie. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. And that was fantastic. Um, but then the rest, everything he's in, he just... 
oh, he owns it. And I love it. But yeah, like he's great. His reactions when he, cause he is the one who knows that both of these guys yes. are in love with this girl when he's like realizing it. I mean, that might as well be a Buster Keaton scene yeah, or like it's something great. out of, you know, uh, Charlie Chaplin. Like it's some of the best, just like straight comedy. It's so good. I love it. Yeah. I loved it. But yeah, I mean the dancing scene, it rules like the dancing. It's really good in here. Songs a little bored by like just the straight up song parts. Mm-hmm. I was kind of bored by like, I just was. I don't think it. if they were just forced Gershwin songs into this musical, like it yeah. certainly felt that way. Yeah. Didn't feel true to what was actually happening. What we were actually seeing. Um, but overall, I thought the story was good. Mm-hmm. Like I did read it was kind of like a little controversial, too, because basically it's alluding that both of these people are like kept like a kept woman, a kept man by these other people with money and security. But then they're in love with each other, which is like a, a relationship that isn't going to get a lot of uh, actual like direct talking about right. it. Do you know what I mean? You can't right. really like, say things like that in 1951, but sure. So that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, just and just dealing with, yeah, like just dealing with the types of relationships it does in here and like, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, it obviously feels like they're dancing around it a little bit, but like at the same time, just like you recognize it and you're into it. You know, right. Like, right. It works. And, um, I think, you know, the plot is fine. I do think that like, it doesn't the love story aspect doesn't hold up great just because like Gene Kelly comes across as like very aggressive and oh, creepy. Very, very aggressive and creepy. And like watching this But like she also responds well. She to like be fair, changes unlike, her response all of a sudden. But unlike the girl in I guess that's a little fair. Never mind. They basically do the same they thing. They do the same thing. She's all like, No, leave me alone and then she's like, Huh, oh, you're so funny, okay. Which watching watching that and Quo Vadis, part of me is like, you know, everything that's going on right now with like the me too movement and that kind of stuff and the way that men have been treating women for decades. But you watch movies like this from the fifties and you're like, if they grew up, if these men grew up watching these movies and this is how these men got these women, does it make sense that they thought that's how you did it? That you just were aggressive and creepy. Right. And, especially such a staple of a movie and Gene Kelly and I. Right. Yeah, and yeah, I think yeah. this, I mean, if this happens across decades of film i think and also this like idea of women play hard to get but they're really into you but they're gonna act like they're disgusted by your behavior which happens in both those movies they're like you're i hate you leave me alone but then they're like oh i really do love you you know that i do i think that that if you keep seeing that message played over and over again like maybe that's gonna affect the way you view situations as well that you're like oh well she's saying that she hates me, but she's probably going to be into it. Right, no. That's like a... Sorry. Wow, yawning. Uh, that was a great... That's a great observation, though. So it's an observation, but I don't want to, like, hold that against an American in Paris. It no. was a different time. People today need to understand that that's not the way things work anymore, no matter what Gene Kelly was right. doing. It's also this, like, a fictional situation. <laughs> so right. I'm not going to hold it against that. I think that... I mean, I just think that this is an astounding feat that they captured on film, honestly. It's beautiful. You know, I, I would agree. I think it was very fun to watch. I'm glad I finally saw it. Um, we're actually going to Paris soon. Mm-hmm. Like, we're going to be Americans in Paris. We are. Um, well, they weren't even in Paris. You know, they were in you know, sound I stage. kept thinking, though, like I kept going back to Singing in the Rain while watching this movie. And at the end of the day, if I had to choose one, it's an easy choice. And this movie would lose out to Singing in the Rain any day. Yeah, no, agreed for sure. So, and I'm not to say like, obviously, that's not fair. Um, but just because they're similar in many ways. Yeah. Um. I, although I really liked this movie, at the end of the day, when we're discussing what should win Best Picture, 
I feel like that's kind of like should that's going to add mm. to my debate, I guess. Hmm. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Which again is probably unfair, but it's like so close together that like I don't know. You know what I mean? Right, but Singing in the Rain didn't win. <laughs> right. Which is weird because I do Singing in the Rain is probably well that's going to be next season, but I'm pretty sure it's ranked like the number one best musical. <laughs> I mean, I don't see how it couldn't be. It's really, it is great. It and took I, me so many years to see it. And like when I saw it, my, my, I feel like literally I had to pick up my jaw off the floor a few times, mm-hmm. but I was just so blown away by what I was watching. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Sorry, I agree. I, let's not, well, that's not what we're here to talk about. No. Though. Like I that's said, not what, tune um, in next I season for singing. I don't know who the actress is in this movie. Leslie Curl. Fantastic. I fell in love with her. She's great. And she, this is her first movie she stole my heart for an hour and a half i'm sorry baby mm-hmm. no it's fine okay it's fine yeah my heart was with gene kelly's butt so it's fine <laughs> <laughs> does he have a good butt he's know. a great butt. he's a it. dancer they have to wear such big pants though it's like not so when I he's did, dancing I notice it. okay fair not when he's dancing okay <laughs> look out next time look out for gene kelly's butt everybody i, will, I got it <laughs> but no i don't know i feel like we don't have much else to say i think it's great oh i also really love Speaking of Leslie Caron, the sequence where she's introduced, where the her fiance is yes. describing her yeah. different facets of her personality, that montage is fantastic. Fantastic! It's so great. It's the first thing that reminded me of Singing in the Rain in like a way, yeah. and then it didn't keep doing that, and I was like, mm. yeah. You know? <laughs> this is just such a great stylish movie. Like that part is so stylish. The ending scene where they're in that black and white but see, ball. Doesn't it feel though that it's it doesn't feel that style? Like I agree that there's these random segments. Where it's like over stylized and really cool. I just kind of wish we had more of that. Yeah, it would be or cool. Or they if it was... saved all of it for the end or something. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? No, yeah. Like the I fact that it's just saying. like it's teased to us in the beginning and then we don't see it for like an hour. You know what I mean? That's fair. I don't know. That's, That's just fair. I guess. It's, just a, it's a small complaint because honestly, it's a very enjoyable movie. Mm-hmm. It's great. All right. Okay. What do other people think? Rotten Tomato audience score of 79%, which seems low. It really does, actually. Critic score of 95%. For its legacy on the original list of the 100 Greatest Films, it was ranked at number 68, but it did not make the, the anniversary list. Oh, wow. Okay. Which is strange, because yeah. it seems 68 would still right. stay on there. But okay. On their list of the 100 greatest, pa- greatest Passions, it's ranked at number 39. On their list of the 100 Greatest Songs, I Got Rhythm is ranked at number 32. On their list of the greatest musicals, it's ranked at number nine. And on the AFI list of the 50 greatest screen legends, Gene Kelly is ranked at number 15. And the film was preserved in the National Film Registry in 1993. At the box office, it made $7 million worldwide. Cool. So it is. That's an American Paris, the winner of the 24th Academy Awards. But Devin. Yes, Kyle. Do you think it, you think looking back, Looking back. At 1951 in movies. Mm, what came out that year? Uh, <laughs> the African Queen. <laughs> Strangers on a Train. No. Uh, <laughs> that's another episode. We'll tell you about it in a minute. <laughs> looking back at this, these best nominations, these best Oscar, yes. best picture race. You know what I'm saying. I, the description of our podcast. What we're here to do. Yes. Here's. Do, do you think that the right movie won? Here's my dilemma with this for me it comes down to an american in paris and a streetcar named desire for sure those two 
But how do you compare those two? Because one I love it. I love is it. like a gritty, realistic, performance-driven right. piece. And one is a huge spectacle right. of dance and song, which right. required hundreds of people, thousands of man hours to create. Right. And both both are successful in what they're doing, but what they're doing is so different that it is very hard to compare the two. But enough about <laughs> a place in the sun in Quovatis. <laughs> Did I steal your thunder or? No, you didn't. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, were you about to make that joke? I don't know. No, no, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, as a person... <laughs> which is how I have as to approach to a dog everything Wolf. really yeah. uh, as a person who grew up watching musicals and I have like a deep deep love for musicals part of me is completely fine with an American in Paris winning because I think that it was a, it's a masterpiece of what it is of a dance film a dance musical but if I'm picking like the movie that I prefer. <laughs> yeah, that's literally what we're doing. I know. Well, I would pick a streetcar named desire. I'm just saying I'm not like, I'm not like really mad that an American in Paris right. won. I'm okay with everything. <laughs> Can I just point out real quick before you do your thing? Sure. That it's crazy. Like, first of all, going into this award show, streetcar named desire was the like odds on favorite to win everything oh, wow, okay. they thought it was going to sweep everything but the way things came down is really crazy because like three of the acting awards went to a streetcar named yeah. directing went to a place in the sun and then best picture goes to right. an american paris everything was split very hmm. strangely and i think part of that might be that this was a very strong year for film and it was they were trying to spread sure, out the evenly love. spread the yeah, love. i get it but kyle you tell me all right so here's how i'm making my decision okay it's clear that a streetcar named desire is the better thing like in, in every aspect, but, not in song and dance, but I will be sure <laughs> I will back it up by saying like two things. One, I already said singing in the rain is a far superior film to, um, an American, an American in Paris. So like already like that hurts it in a way, but because it's very similar. This singing in the rain hadn't come out yet. You have to keep that in mind. <laughs> no, I understand that. But knowing that like it did. Okay. Like if I had to choose one of those two movies, which again are very similar. It would be Singing in the Rain 100%. Yeah, Singing in the Rain is a better movie. But if I want to go to your and really challenge like how I pick the movies, if it's one of these movies and the other one doesn't exist forever, it's still A Streetcar Named Desire. Yeah, if I have to pick a movie and then the other one doesn't exist anymore, I'd pick A Streetcar Named Desire. All right. Not that that's what we're here to do. No. We're not here to do that. But it helps with the, it helps with the judging process. Sure. But I just think A Streetcar Named Desire has done more for the actors that grace our films today and, you know, in the past, mm -hmm. I think it's, it's, you know, I think it's, it highlights the careers of Marlon Brando and launches him, uh, Ilya Kazan. Oh my God. The work that came after this, you know what I mean? Like it just was so much, not to say like, obviously singing in the rain only happened because of American in Paris too. Like yes. I understand that, but I just feel that, as influential as America Paris probably was, although again, it got reproduced and to better affair, in my opinion, 
and again in Singing in the Rain. I'm sorry. I keep bringing up Singing in the Rain. Well, okay. I just want to say, like, the plots are extremely different. So different. Those two movies. But fucking Gene Kelly, funny, dancing numbers, uh, long, overlong ballet sequence. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, I just, I think just deep down inside for what, you know, I don't know where I kind of lean in what in the movies I like, but then also like just can appreciate technically in every single like like Streetcar Named Desire checks all the boxes for me. Whereas an American American Paris is a crowning achievement, obviously, mm-hmm. in scale and grandiose and everything else. I think Streetcar Named Desire one hundred percent takes the cake in this. Like it's not even a t- it's not actually really a tough debate for me. If that's not clear, <laughs> no, I understand, and I I mostly agree. My thing is just that. I don't think musicals get enough respect because I think people do just see them as like, oh, they're light fluff and it's not. Whereas right, like right. a movie like A Strict Desire is always going to get prestige attached to it. Right. And I just think that we should also honor the movies that that do what they do so well. And I think that it is a great example of a musical. It does all of those things really well. And we shouldn't discount that just because it's no. not what we consider a prestige drama type thing. That's sure. all I'm saying. And I understand. Which one? We, I, don't, I can't remember what you picked now. I picked A Strict Desire. Oh, okay. But I'm not mad that an American Paris no. one. I mean, I'm a little disappointed. I really am. But, you know, what can you do? What can you do? It's not like it hurt any no. of the people's careers. And honestly, I believe in spreading around the love. Right. I do. I'm a, I'm a proponent. So. Love, love, love. Oh, we don't have the royalties for that. I'm sorry. Also, do not let our audience know how terrible of a singer you are. And that was fine. <laughs> All right. Well, that's our episode. We're doing things a little different this season. Uh-huh. <laughs> this is news to Kyle. No, I'm just kidding. He knows about it. It was his idea. Um, instead of discussing, there were other notable films that came out this year that didn't get nominated, but instead of talking for another hour about those films, next week we're going to give you a bonus episode where we discuss those other notable films. And in case you want to watch along with us, those films are going to be Strangers on a Train, The African Queen, and the honorary foreign language award recipient, Rashomon. Rashomon. God, you know, we left those off in order to do better on time. And I'm just looking at our clock right now. Do we not do better on time? We did not do much better on time. But it's would have been over two hours if we talked about the three other movies. Ugh, so, Guys, bear with us. We're, we're trying sorry. to figure out this time thing. It's a lot of movies to talk about. It, it is. So we're, we're, work with us. Not every episode will be as long as it is. And we all have to admit... About five to eight minutes of the episode is songs usually, so. Yeah. Speaking of, we came in listening to the Oscar winner in the cool, cool, cool of the evening from Here Comes the Groom. A classic, no doubt. But we're going to go out listening to An American in Paris, the Gershwin piece that inspired the film. Not all of it. Not all 17 minutes, but some of it. Some of it, for sure. And please, uh, again... Try to rate us if you can in iTunes. It really helps us reach more people. Let us know what you think. Our episode's too long. Like, say it in, like, a non-complaint way, And, like, attach it to a five-star review. That'd be great. (laughs) You know what? Say whatever you want. All complaints should be attached to a (laughs) five-star review. It's the only way we'll read them. (laughs) All right. Thank you, guys. See you next week.